I'm going to talk a little about some of the things I've learned in life, about how to lead a good moral life, and then talk about what kind of citizens I think we all need to be uh, to have a good democratic culture and have a healthy democratic character. Uh, my life started out in unpredictable form. I grew up in Greenwich Village in the 60s uh, to somewhat left-wing parents. Uh, when I was five, they took me to a B-in where hippies would just go to B. Uh, and one of the things they did was they set a garbage can on fire and threw their wallets into it to demonstrate their liberation from money and material things. And I was five and I saw a $5 bill on fire in the garbage can. So I broke from the crowd, reached into the fire, grabbed the money and ran away. And that was my first step over to the right. Um, and, and then when I was seven, I read a book called Paddington the Bear and decided I wanted to become a writer. Uh, I remember in high school, I was, I was already deeply into writing. I wanted to date a woman named Bernice. She didn't want to date me. She wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. But those were her values. Um, and then when I was 18, the admissions officers at Columbia University, Brown and Wesleyan, decided I should go to the University of Chicago. Um, and the saying about Chicago, it's a very heavy, cerebral place. The saying about it is, it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. And so they have t-shirts they wear that says, sure, it works in practice, but doesn't work in theory. So super intellectual. Um, and I was pretty cerebral in those days. I did a double major in history and celibacy while I was at Chicago. Um, but I, I did have the big break of my life uh, that happened there, which was that William F. Buckley, a prominent columnist, came to campus. And I wrote a very mean parody of him for being a name-dropping blowhard, which he apparently found funny, because at the end of his speech, he said to the student body, David Brooks, if you're in the audience, I want to give you a job. And, and that was the big break of my life. Um, now, sadly, I was not in the audience. Um, <laughs> um, but I called him up three days later, or three years later, and he, the job was there. And uh, I was set. And my career has had a pretty steady and very boring trajectory. I'm a conservative columnist at the New York Times, which is a job I likened to being the chief rabbi at Mecca. Um, I, I do a show on P PBS called The News Hour, which we, it's a very great show that was formerly hosted by Jim Lehrer, which it, it's a show with, I think with a lot of civility, great values, um, but a certain seasoned audience. So if a 93-year-old lady comes up to me in the airport, I know what she's going to say. I don't watch your show, but my mother loves it. And so... <laughs> Um, we're very big in the hospice community. Uh, the, um, and then I started writing these books and reading these books. And as I've written more books and read more books, as I get older, I get a little more sensitive, a little more feminine. I'm the only American man who finished that book, Eat, Pray, Love, if you remember that thing. Uh, by page 123, it was actually lactating, which was surprising uh, to me. Um, and then I wrote, four years ago, a book called The Road to Character, a book on character. And I learned that writing a book on character doesn't give you good character, and even reading a book on character doesn't give you good character. Uh, but buying a book on character does give you good character, and so <laughs> I recommend it. And so when you walk through life, the career side of life, you walk with a certain set of values. And we take kids who start with the intensity of life, and we feed them into the college admissions process, 
which teaches them that status and achievement are at the core of life. And then they get out and they lead the kind of life that I led, which was a life in the meritocracy, trying to make it, trying to achieve, trying to contribute, trying to build up an identity. And this meritocracy does give us a lot of achievement. People have, are driving here from Salt Lake City, all these great companies that are lining the highway, and they're to be saluted and honored. But there are things in the meritocracy that if you take it unadulterated with no other moral system are actually lies. The first lie of the meritocracy is that career success makes you happy. And I'm the poster child for that's not true. The second lie of the meritocracy is the lie of self-sufficiency, that you can make yourself happy. That if you can win one more victory, lose 15 pounds, get really good at yoga, you'll be happy. But when you ask people at the end of their lives what made them happy, it was not self-sufficiency, it was moments of utter dependency when they were utterly dependent on somebody else and somebody else was utterly dependent on them. The third lie is that life is an individual journey. We buy kids this book called Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. And in that book, there's an individual kid graduating from college, and his life is a series of experiences on the way up to success. He has no friends, he has no relationships, he has no connections, because we think of life as an individual journey. If you give that, that book to immigrant groups, they hate that book, because that's not life as they experience it. The fourth lie is that you can create your own truth. You have to come up with your own worldview. That truth is not something outside of you locked into the natural order of the universe. It's something you create on your own. And if you tell people that, that you have to create their own truth, very often they will not be able to do that. And then there are all the lies of the meritocracy and the culture of the meritocracy. That you are what you accomplish, that you earn dignity and respect by attaching yourself to prestigious brands, the emotional of the meritocracy is conditional love. You earn your way to be loved. The anthropology of the meritocracy is that you're not a soul to be saved. You're a set of skills to be maximized. And the big lie at the head of the meritocracy, which is the really corrosive thing, is that people who've achieved more are worth more than other people. And if you want to tear apart your society, that's a good lie to introduce. A few years ago, there was an Israeli daycare center that had a problem parents were coming in late to pick up the kids. And so they imposed fines on the parents who came in late. The number of parents who came in late doubled. And that's because before, picking up your kid on time was a moral responsibility of the teacher so they could go home. Once the fine was imposed, it was no longer a moral responsibility, it was an economic transaction. The moral lens had been taken away and the economic lens had been put up. And our society does a reasonably good job, just in the course of daily life, of taking off the moral lens and helping us see life through an economic lens, of making us more morally numb. And that certainly happened in my life over the course of achieving far more career success than I ever thought I did. I was writing, and writing is a lonely profession. And then when I succeeded, I found out it was lonelier still. For the road to character, I was on book tour for 99 consecutive days, and I ate 42 consecutive meals alone at an airport, airplane, or hotel. And when your life is like that, you're completely off the rails. I, at about that time, I saw a picture of Britney Spears who went kind of berserk and shaved off all her hair. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. I'm there. <laughs> and in the course of the career, just by drifting along and paying too much attention to those things, you come to desire the wrong things. You desire reputation, and 
at least in my case, you come to idolize time, you value productivity over people. Instead of just de settling into deep relationship with people, you've always got a clock in your head, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do that. And so you sort of glide through people. And the wages of sin are sin. And my own ditch came in 2013. My kids had left home or were leaving home for college. My marriage had ended. My friendships were in the conservative movement. I wasn't part of that movement anymore. And so I was living alone in an apartment, not having anybody over, trying to work my way through it. Workaholism is a very good way to avoid any spiritual and emotional problem. And the way I described it in the book is that if you went to my kitchen, because I wasn't having people over, you open the drawer where there should have been silverware, there was just post-it notes. And if you open the drawer where there should have been plates, it was just stationary, it was just working. And I was suffering the, lo the logical end of the cultural meritocracy, which is to be detached from other people. A lone monad on the way up. And as I was suffering from this, a lot of people were. 35% of Americans over 45 say they're chronically lonely. The largest growing religious organization is unaffiliated. The largest growing political movement is unaffiliated. Since 1999, the suicide rate is up 30%. Since 2011, the teenage suicide rate is up 70%. College depression rates have doubled in the last 10 years. There are a lot of people who just are very lonely, very isolated, and very afraid. And part of it is the culture of the meritocracy. Part of it is probably the internet. We, the internet is a source of bad communication. We don't commute from our hearts and souls on the internet. We communicate through our egos, comparison. My life is better than yours, that's Instagram. Your opinions are stupider than mine, that's Twitter. <laughs> We're not programmed and we weren't created to communicate on this shallow level. And so, so how, somehow we've entered an age of bad generalization. We don't see each other well. Liberals believe that. Evangelicals believe that. LDS believes that. All groups, all stereotypes, bad generalizations, not seeing the heart and soul of each person, but just a bunch of bad labels. And this, to me, is the core problem that our democratic character has to be faced with. Many of our society's great problems flow from people not feeling seen and known. Blacks feeling that their daily experience is not understood by whites. Rural people not feeling seen by coastal elites. Depressed young people not feeling understood by anyone. People across the political divides looking at angry incomprehension at one another. Employees feeling invisible at work, husbands and wives in broken marriages, realizing that the person who should know them best actually has no clue. And so this, to me, is the core democratic trait that we all have to get a little better at. And that is the, great, the trait of seeing each other deeply and being deeply seen. It's a question of epistemology, of understanding each other. John Ruskin, one of my heroes, said, the greatest thing a human soul ever does in this world is to see something and tell what it saw in a plain way. Hundreds can talk for one who can think, but thousands can think for one who can see. And when you think about it, there's one skill at the center of any healthy family, company, classroom, community, university, or nation. The ability to see someone else deeply, to know another person profoundly, to make them feel heard and understood. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking, what is this skill? How do you get good at it? The first thing we think about, it, it's not a detached intellectual skill, it's an emotional form of knowing. Our master here is St. Augustine,
who said that knowledge is a form of love. Love is a focus of attention. Love is a motivational state to learn more about another. Love is a drive to move in harmony with another. We separate the heart and the head, but Augustine never did that. And when you think about the Bible, you think about all those different cases where people were misseen and misunderstood. In Luke, Jesus is not even recognized by his own disciples. On the road to the, for the Good Samaritan, the Levite sees the injured guy by the side of the road, but he doesn't really see him. Only the Samaritan sees him. There's, they're always playing with different sorts of recognition. The biblical word for know in, in Hebrew is yada, and it has dozens of different usage which cross our lines of head and heart, meaning everything from sexual intercourse to being loyal to someone to entering into covenant with people. And so the Bible is written in a language that puts deep knowledge and deep emotion at the heart of what we do. And so I've tried to study people who are really good at seeing and knowing and making you feel known. And I have this thing at the Aspen Institute called Weave the Social Fabric Project. We go around the country and we look at people who are great at building communities, who are great at relationship. And we call them weavers. And they are geniuses at making you feel heard and understood. That's what they do. And so I look, what do they do? How do they do this? Well, one of the things they do is they plant themselves down somewhere. They're not from anywhere. They're not cosmopolitans. They've picked one spot of ground that they really care about, and they know where they're from. They know who their people are. They're rooted. There's a woman I met who I was describing earlier to some students named Aisha Butler in Chicago. And Aisha was living in Englewood, which is a tough neighborhood in Chicago. And she was going to move out because it was dangerous and she had a nine-year-old girl. And on the day she was moving out, she looked across the street and saw a, pink gir uh, a girl in a pink dress playing in an empty lot with broken bottles. And she turned to her husband and said, we're not going to leave that. We're not going to just be another family that left that. She planted herself down in Englewood. She Googled volunteer in Englewood. She just volunteered and volunteered, now runs the big community organization there. And if you go to the stores in Englewood, there are t-shirts that say, proud daughter of Englewood, proud son of Englewood. So she made a commitment to a place. One of my heroes is a guy I hope is hero to you, um, pseudo-messiah, Bruce Springsteen. And Bruce Springsteen uh, grew up in a place called Freehold, New Jersey, uh, in Asbury Park, New Jersey. And his two first albums were not successful. His third album was Born to Run, which is a big smash success. The next logical step for him to be, would be to go big and become a global superstar, make an album that could appeal to everybody. He did the exact opposite. He went back to Freehold, New Jersey, back to Asbury Park, New Jersey, and made a small stripped-down album about the thing he cared most about, the people in those towns, and how they were suffering. And so he rooted himself down. A few years ago, I was in Madrid uh, at the big stadium of Real Madrid, the football stadium, and it was a Bruce Springsteen concert. And I looked at the kids in the, in the concert, and they had these t-shirts that said, Stone Pony, that's a bar in Asbury Park. Highway 9, that's a highway that goes by Freehold, New Jersey. Greasy Lake, a lake near that. He, Springsteen, like Faulkner, like so many great artists, create their own environment, they bury themselves, they root themselves down, and the audience will come to them. 
The audience wants to know you have roots. You are rooted down. In the middle of that concert, I saw 65,000 kids screaming, I was born in the USA, I was born in the USA. I was like, no, you weren't. <laughs> but they came to visit him. Then the second thing, after being rooted down, they're daring social explorers. One of my favorite expressions comes from psychology. It says that all of life is a series of daring adventures from a secure base. You know who you are, you've planted themselves down, you therefore have the security to go abroad. And a lot of the weavers we, um, we admire, they love being the only person like them in the room. There's a woman named um, Sarah Heminger, who's a favorite of ours, grew up in Indiana. Her dad was, a, was in the church and found out that their pastor was embezzling money. So their dad reported it. And instead of getting rid of the pastor, they, sh they shunned Sarah's family. So she grew up with, um, for eight years, not being invited to parties, sometimes at Christmas parties for her own grandmother's house. She and her brother had to sit in a different room because they were shunned. She knew what true isolation was. Then she went to Johns Hopkins. She was riding a bus in Baltimore and saw some kids outside of school. And she saw those kids, young African-American kids in Baltimore, and said, I know exactly what they're feeling. I recognize that isolation. And so she put herself in the context of spending her life now with those kids, people completely unlike herself, a Midwestern white girl. But they get a thrill out of people being with people completely unlike themselves and making that human bond and being transparent. And this is the third strait of people who know, them, know others deeply. They're emotionally transparent. A few years ago, I, my wife and I joined a community. We were, uh, I was invited over to their house um, in about 2015. And it was a couple named Kathy and David. And Kathy and David had a friend in the DC public schools who had a friend whose mom had health and other issues, so it often had nothing to eat and no place to go. And they, um, they said, well, James can stay with us. And then James had a friend, and that kid had a friend, and that kid had a friend. And by the time I came there in 2015, there were like 40 kids around the dinner table and 15 sleeping around various houses. They created this big chosen family. And I walk in, and I'm a reticent middle-aged white guy, and I reach out to shake the hand of one of the kids, and he says, we really don't shake hands here. We hug here. And so I'm not the huggiest person on the face of the earth, but we've been going back and have become part of this community for the past four years, and we hug 40 people on the way in and hug 40 people on the way out. And what the kids do is they beam emotional transparency at you, and they demand you from it. And so they rewire you into a different sort of person. The reticent guy who, like, a little standoffish, suddenly becomes reasonably good at being emotionally transparent by throwing emotion at other people and having them receive. I took my daughter there once. She said, that's the warmest place I've ever been in my life. And that makes you a much more open person. Uh, I was telling students earlier today, I was at a festival a couple weeks ago, and they gave us song lyrics, and they said, pick a stranger in the audience and sing this song into that person's eyes. Uh, three years ago, I would have had a stroke. <laughs> but now I can be a little more open because I was trained by these kids in A-OK. -okay. The fourth thing weavers have done that enables them to know others and be deeply known is they've learned to use their suffering well. We all have moments of suffering. 
but we can either be broken by those moments or we can be broken open by them. Some people are broken. They, get, they build a fragile shell. They curl in. They are afraid to be touched. The part of themselves that is hurting, they just want to shell it over. And those people usually lash out in anger and resentment. There's a saying that pain that is not transformed gets transmitted. But other people, they get broken open. They get more and more vulnerable, more open. They live their life at a deeper level. The theologian Paul Tillich said that what moments of suffering does is they interrupt your life and they remind you you're not the person you thought you were. They carve through what you thought was the floor of the basement of your soul and reveal a cavity below, and then they carve through that and reveal a cavity below. You just see deeper into yourself than you ever knew existed. And you realize when you see into those depths that only spiritual and emotional food will heal, heal, fill those voids. And so they begin to live life at a deeper level. I had a friend um, who said that when her do first daughter was born, she realized she loved her more than evolution required. And I've always liked that because it speaks to that deeper level. Some things we do to pass along our genes, but some things down in the, deep, uh, down in the deeps of ourselves, there is just some enchanted level, which is where we can find our illimitable ability to care for one another. One of the weavers we met in Ohio is a woman named Sarah Atkins, who had the worst thing happen to you that is possible to imagine. She was out antiquing with her, um, her, uh, her mom, and she came home one Sunday evening and uh, opened the door and expected to see her kids and her husband. She said, I'm home, mommy's home. And she, no response. There's a mattress covering the doorway leading to the basement. She thinks they're playing hide and seek. She rushes down. She sees her husband slumped over. She sees her child which look on the sofa which looks, what look, with what looks like chocolate around him. She feels that he's gone cold. Her husband had killed their kids and himself. Now she lives life as pure service. She has, helps women who've suffered from violence. She's a free pharmacy. She teaches at Ohio University. Her life is free openness and care. Someone who has suffered unimaginably and yet lives with what Richard Rohr calls a bright sadness. She's seen the worst of the worlds, but there's a brightness and a humor about her and agape, there's selfless love that she gives out. She told me, I do it because I'm angry at him. Whatever he tried to do to me, he's not going to do it. I'm going to make a difference in the world. And that's someone who lives her life openly because whatever she had to lose, she can lose. And she's going to be open through it all. When you, think, you look at these people and how good they are at it, you realize that deep seeing is so difficult. And yet you look around and it happens all the time. I have a friend whose daughter is in second grade and she was struggling. Uh, and the teacher said to her, you know, you're really good at thinking before you speak. And at that moment, the girl felt known and respected and understood. And it sort of turned around her whole year because the teacher had seen into her. Anne wrote a book and one of the most chapters is about a place called the Oaks Academy in Indianapolis. And one of the little kids was acting out and the teacher said to him, your conscience must be really small today. And the kid didn't know what a conscience was, but he knew he didn't want to have a small one. <laughs> and so again, the teacher has, great teachers have the ability to look in and see into the students. And great friends have that, and great spouses have that. I often think of the time 
Um, happened a few weeks ago. I've mentioned this once or twice in public. My wife, Anne, was by the front door of our house, and the door was open, and she happened to be looking at an orchid uh, that we have by the front door, and I looked up from whatever I was doing, and I just saw her silhouette pondering the orchid. And it was that weird moment that spouses have when you think, wow, I really know her. And it's one of those moments when reality sort of stops and you become aware of a depth that exists in the, even the ordinary moments of life and the deliciousness of knowing someone deeply and also a deliciousness when somebody sees you. The connections that can happen between people are truly amazing. I had a, uh, uh, an acquaintance named Douglas Hofstetter who's an Indiana University cognitive scientist. He was um, on sabbatical with his wife Carol and their two kids who were then like three and five when Carol died suddenly. And he kept a picture of Carol on the dresser in his bedroom every day and he looked at it every day. Uh, but one day he looked at it with spe special attention and he wrote about what he sensed. I looked at her face and I looked so deeply that I felt I was behind her eyes. And all at once I found myself saying as tears flowed, that's me, that's me. And those simple words brought back many thoughts that I'd had before about the fusion of our souls into one higher level entity, about the fact that at the core of both our souls lay our identical hopes and dreams for our children, about the notion that those hopes were not separate or distinct hopes, but were just one kind of hope, one clear thing that defined us both, that wielded us into a unit, the kind of unit I had but dimly imagined before being married and having children. I realized that though Carol had died, the core piece of her had not died at all, and that it had lived on very determinedly in my brain. And so his book is called A Strange Loop, I'm a Strange Loop. And his argument is that as human beings, we are strange loops, and our loops interpenetrate each other. And this is the most local thing imaginable, the most particular and most relational thing imaginable. And yet a vast society of 330 million depends on this local connection and in hundreds and hundreds and millions and millions of these local connections. What does a nation have? It has some basic level of trust that we can, tru that we can trust each other. It has some basic level of fraternity that we basically understand each other at some level, some assumed common humanity. It has a common story. That we, in America, our story and the story here is an exodus story. We left oppression, we crossed the wilderness, we came to the promised land, and we tried to build that land. Moses told it was going to be the great, on the great seal of the United States. And, but uh, Benjamin Franklin wanted him there. Martin Luther King talked more about exodus than he did about the New Testament. For immigrant groups, for people in this church, exodus is the great story and the great unifying story for our country. We also need a great uh, common project, things we do together. In Genesis, the creation of the universe is described in nine verses. In Exodus, the creation of the tabernacle goes on for 300 verses. Why does it go on for so long? It's because the Israelites were a fractious people who needed to be unified into a common people. And if you want to unify a people, they have to be able to work together on a common project. My favorite definition of, or description of a community comes from Jane Jacobs. 
She was living in the west side of New York City, Lower West Side, and this was about 1962. And she's upstairs uh, looking out over the street. She's on her second floor apartment, and she sees a guy pulling a nine-year-old girl angrily. And Jane Jacobs doesn't know if it's a kidnapping or just a father disciplining, disciplining his daughter. So she's about to go down to check out the situation just to make sure it's not a kidnapping. And, but as she's walking down, she looks out over um, the streetscape and notices the butcher has come out of his butcher shop. The lady at the fruit stand has come out into the street. The locksmith has come out into the street. And she writes, that guy didn't realize it, but he was surrounded. There were people there ready to act if he did anything wrong. And that's, to me, what community is. It's a bunch of people looking after each other, a bunch of people seeing each other and seeing each other deeply taking the time to really enter into relationship with each other and to depend upon one another and to buttress each other's stories and to buttress each other's behavior. Ann and I have a friend who lives in North um, Louisiana uh, and his, his sister named Ruthie died at a tragically young age. And she was a school teacher and everybody loved her in this town. And um, she did one thing for the town on Christmas Eve which was that she would go to the cemetery uh, and she would put a lighted candle on every gravestone uh, just to recognize the dead on Christmas Eve. And she died just around Christmas time and Rod, our friend, asked his mom, do you want to go to the cemetery tonight and do what Ruthie used to do, put the candle up there? And his mom said, you know, I'll do it in future years, but it, it would just wreck me, it's just too soon. And so they decided not to do it, and they drove across town to a family's house, and they happened to drive past the cemetery, and they saw that somebody else had put a candle on every gravestone. And that is sort of what happens in community. The behaviors, the norms, the gifts get replicated and spread around from people who are deeply engaged and deeply seeing one another. And to me, the end result of all this is a sort of joyfulness. You can be happy alone. You win a game, you get a promotion, you feel big about yourself. Happiness is the expansion of self, but joy is the merger of self. It's the kind of thing that happens when you forget where you end and something else begins, when you really are seeing deeply into each other. I have a friend named Christian Wyman who's a poet living in Prague, and he was writing his poetry in the kitchen table, and a falcon happened to land on the windowsill. And he stared at this bird, and he was stunned by its beauty. And he called his girlfriend, who was in the shower, come here, you got to see this. His girlfriend rushes out, dripping wet, and they're just staring at the beauty of the bird. And then the bird, which was, had been looking at the street, turns and locks eyes with Wyman. And Wyman and the bird are just looking at each other. And Wyman feels, he says, I felt my stomach crumble in. I felt I was looking into centuries. He's having a moment with eternal creation. And his girlfriend says, understood the importance of the moment and said, make a wish, make a wish. And Wyman wrote a poem, a stanza of which is, and I wished and I wished and I wished and I wished that that moment would, not, would never end. And just like that, it vanished. And so what I've been talking about today is something that seems apolitical, not about democracy. It's just simply seeing each other.
And yet it to me, seems to me that is the glue that holds us all together. We're trying to do something that's never been done before and something that's phenomenally hard. We're trying to build the first mass multicultural democracy. We should give ourselves a little grace. It's a hard thing to do. But it only gets done if we take the time to look into each other's eyes and sing those lyrics at each other. Thank you very much.